0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Gardner Carney Leadership Institute podcast. The GCLI has developed a pedagogy of leadership which combines brain science, leadership studies, cultural competency, and developmental psychology. Its mission is to teach teachers to teach leadership to students. This is your go to podcast for discussions, tips, and stories for leadership and leadership education. And I am your host, Katherine Birdie, but please call me Birdie. Our world is in dire need of people just like you, people who are committed to building communities of leaders young and old. So let's get busy leading the next generation of leaders and thank you for joining us. Hello, hello, GCLI community. By now,
1: most of you are getting back into the school routine. I hope that's going well. And while you were thinking about setting the right tone in your classroom or school environments, we'd like to highlight a known struggle for many, many students and adults that can upend your well-laid plans and diminish individual student learning for about one in every six of your students. And that is the topic of mental health and addiction. Our guest today is Stivey Coleman, whose inspiring story and courageous leadership may serve as a bridge for you to talk about mental health and addictive behaviors. Stivey is a 2021 graduate of Southern Methodist University, where he was a scholarship recipient, leader on the SMU lacrosse team and in his social circles. But like many students, he was struggling with his mental health and brought with him to SMU, a substance abuse addiction that began in his teens. He's here today to share his journey and the leadership that emerged out of his recovery. Everyone, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Stivey Coleman. Hi, Stivey.
2: Hey, Bertie. Thank Thanks you so for much for being here.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. thank you. Um, let's start, um, let's, let's kind of go back many years and thinking about maybe your eighth grade, ninth grade years. How would you say that the student, that the teacher, excuse me, how would your teachers have perceived you at that age outwardly?
2: Um, Outwardly in eighth grade, I was probably um, a high-functioning student that uh, might have misbehaved sometimes and, um, I don't know, gotten into trouble doing something or... uh, Whatever it was. We, we were at an all-boys school in New York, and um, we didn't have a playground in the hallway, so sometimes we you know, <laughs> ran into walls or whatever. But uh, it, we had a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I think overall, I mean, I was I was an athlete and um, sang in the operetta and did all sorts of stuff at school and um, have some great, great, great friends from there. Um, so on the outside, I think teacher pop perceived me as... Someone they might get frustrated with sometimes, but also was probably um, an eighth grade boy just trying to figure it out.
1: Just a normal eighth grade boy trying to figure it out. Awesome. Well, yeah. which leads me to the next question: You're trying to figure it out. What was what was going on, kind of internally in the in the deeper that time. Lands, landscape of seven yeah. woman. <laughs>
2: um, in eighth grade, um, I'd started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, Um, so I was doing all that. Um, For me, personally, girls just come into the picture, so that was a whole other thing that caused a lot of stress and anxiety, Um, and also kind of changed social dynamics as well. And um, so that was going on, and then I also had this added, which I didn't have a a word for at the time or a way of um, expressing or even really a desire to express. candidly, was, uh, a lot of anxiety. Um, I would lay in bed at night, usually actually listen to country music, funny enough, being a city kid in New York, but, um, uh, <laughs> listening to country music on my little I home speaker alarm thing. And, uh, just thinking. And, uh, I had these weird intrusive thoughts. Uh, I remember replaying over and over and over again, like what would be said, at my funeral, at my parents' funeral, And it was just like this weird thing. Um, I was dealing with that, and then also under that, I had a lot of shame about um, my weight, and I found out later in life I developed a um, or had the had developed the groundwork for what would become a, a pretty significant eating disorder, um, and so I was I was wrestling with that, and that coincided with the girls, and then obviously again being an eighth grade boy. Uh, just all that mixed together was a lot.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, those teenage years, early teenage years are no joke, yeah. and it's a, it can become a, a crazy kind of cocktail of- Yeah, I'm just trying to figure it out. That, 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 that create a desire to, to numb. And can you take us kind of to that, to that place? Um, you're having these thoughts, and did those thoughts influence your addictive behaviors? Hundred
2: Um, and, and my first real like addiction was food. Um, and that was my way of numbing out and I overeat to extreme excesses. And that was kind of, that was the entree into what, um, uh, would lead to my, especially my drinking and, and other things during high school and college. And, um, and it wasn't for a lack of wanting not to do it. Um, cause I certainly did not want to do it, but, um, It was like the second I had something and that could have been, um, an Oreo to some sort of drug or whatever else. And it was something that I liked. I just could not stop consuming. Um, which was really as a young, um, kid was very, um, it was confusing, candidly, um, and hard, and, and wanting to stop something at fifteen, and not feeling like you can tell anyone about it, and coinciding with these um, fears and things of not being worth enough, and um, everything else was—it it, was—it was hard.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think um, one thing that we talk about at the GCli a lot at the lab is the 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 need for students to be seen heard and known and you know not that that's the antidote to to all the problems but um and and every individual is gonna need different things but I think just being in a you were in a close-knit community you had great friends great teachers good support and still um then you go to smu um yeah and uh kind of tell us what happened there
2: yeah um (laughs) So show up SMU my freshman year, um, like Bertie said, I had already uh, developed a, in hindsight, a pretty healthy addiction. And uh, to, to, to give you context, one of my friends at boarding school uh, referred to me as addict. Uh, so I probably should have had a good idea that something was wrong, but uh, and I, I did at that point. Um, but uh, show up SMU actually had a great time for the first and then as things progressed um it got darker and darker and um uh, isolated and away from friends and family and uh, i was no longer performing really in any way socially academically um, athletically and uh, that was all kind of going downhill and isolated more and more of those intrusive thoughts and destructive behaviors um and eventually reached a place where I, at the end of my freshman year, about three weeks after I came home for summer, um, I ended up, due to a variety of reasons, getting sober and went to a um, 12-step recovery meeting in New York and uh, treatment and all that, and that summer was really figuring all that out, Uh, and then came back to SMU for my sophomore year, uh, against the guidance of a number of people, but I did, and uh, lived in a fraternity house, was a rush chair, um, and at that point I was about three months over. But that was kind of my first piece of SMU.
1: Okay, well, let's just—that's a—that's a stop for a second. Yeah. That's very, very hard. Um, how did you? How did you do that? I think just—it's not just the peer pressure; it's societal pressure in, in colleges everywhere. Um, to, to party, to have fun. To, yeah. to how did you? How did you? live in live in that environment and remain sober
2: um there was a lot to that that we can't hit in 20 minutes but the overarching i guess the reason why it worked was because i was really lucky that i had a really great team of people both in smu and the smu community and outside um that i knew i could rely on and call upon and from start to finish of that smu experience um and still to this day uh, have whenever I hit a crossroads in terms of, should I do this or should I do that? And I don't know the right answer. um, I call one of those people and we talk about it. And usually I'm able to come to the answer I'm comfortable with and keep moving forward. Um, And that translated into things as simple as every party I went to at SMU, I always drove to. So that way I felt like I could get out. I had a car. I could go sit in alone. I like had a safe space. Um, Life, Like I, anyone I talked to so like that was hugely impactful to me um, to living in a fraternity house I was lucky enough to have a single um, so I had a rule where there was no drugs or alcohol in my room and that was my space um, and it worked and like I went to parties at SMU and had more fun than I'd ever had before um, so I just found ways to make it make it work but the real reason why that was able to happen was because the team and the people I had supporting me, um, and the willingness to call them when I needed it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I haven't been through a recovery program, but the support is I know essential and that's what you, um, did next in your, yeah. in your story. You, um, you created a way for other students to have similar support, correct?
2: I did. Um, uh, yeah, and that was, that. yeah. So during the time at SMU, I'm like figuring it out. I'm going to all these parties. I'm having fun, which is weird and confusing in itself because that's what society is telling me was not the case. And, uh, and things were getting better, you know? Like, and I think I know today that other people notice that and I more so than probably I even did at the time. And, um, about six months into that journey, so coming back from winter break at SMU, still sober, still having fun, and um, suddenly all these people started coming up and asking, um, like, "How did you do it? Like, what? I just don't understand. How did you do it?" And um, I would have those conversations, and that, and I would be vulnerable, and that usually opened the door for someone else to be vulnerable too. And I realized through those conversations that there are a lot of people struggling and they didn't know where to go or who to talk to or that they could talk about it. Um, and struggling could be anything from basic anxiety to um, they had lost a sibling to uh, trying to understand how to help their mom. That was sort of like the whole gamut. It's just people dealing with things that um, are hard and it's really hard to be vulnerable that, vulnerable especially in the college community. Um, so that was kind of the entree into it. And I was like, oh my God, I've had this incredibly lucky experience where I've been able to find some sort of peace and love and belonging in this place. Dealing with this stuff um, and this stuff just being mental health and everything else. And um, I wanted to make it easier for other people to basically get access to what I had. Um, and. At the time, that was something that candidly really upset me because part of that team I was able to build at such a young age was because of the places my parents were able to send me to, like boarding schools, like the treatment center. And there were a lot of people at SMB that didn't have that same access to those resources. And I was looking around the school and I'm like, we have this incredible campus, like a very affluent student body and yet, there's so many students struggling that can't get access to help they need. Um, so over the next, well, to this day, but over the next two years, really at SMU, I uh, I worked as hard as I could to raise awareness around this concern, and um, in some ways called in on some social capital to help do that, and um, spoke at sororities and fraternities and other things. And it was actually for myself um, a very, by going through this process of trying to help people at SMU, um, I was able to stay sober, I was able to be happy, I was able to feel like I had purpose in the world. And um, it was especially impactful because I was able to do it in a way that was not in any, by any means that drugs or alcohol, bad or that what you're doing is bad or because i I frankly didn't care Um, it was more about if someone needs help i'm there to help and um, that was something that translated and eventually the group that we had grew significantly and um, today they've now hired a couple people and they're creating a new department and focusing on wellness and recovery and mental health and um, it's a pretty it was a pretty special experience. Um, uh, and, and I did it for the school. I, I had sat down with over 150 college students. Um, and again, it was the whole gambit of like struggling from anxiety to all that stuff. Um, but being able to do that and to have those conversations with that many people that sometimes I might have not otherwise met um, was, pretty, was pretty special for me.
1: I bet that was profound. I want to kind of just highlight a couple of things I'm hearing that that we talk about in the DCLI in terms of the pedagogy of leadership and, and kind of out, how, you've, how I'm hearing that you've outwardly kind of manifested that. And that is leading with vulnerability and compassion. I think, um, I mean, your, your vulnerability opened the door for others to be vulnerable. You spoke to that. And I think that is one of the most courageous leadership qualities that anyone can have. Um, and how you pushed past um, the shame that you at one point felt and kind of, yeah. it, and that actually created the exigent situation to, to lead and be vulnerable. So um, indeed that's hard work, hard, hard, hard work. So um, yeah, I, I want to just kind of highlight that I, I understand, and I'm sure all the listeners understand that that just doesn't happen overnight. Um, yeah, It takes a lot of work, but to be vulnerable and then turn that into a compassionate response like you have, you have at, in the last um, article I read, and it's probably maybe more than that now, um, you helped to raise over two hundred thousand um, dollars to go towards this program. What is the name of the program at SMU? Uh,
2: now it's it's changing. Uh, the what that was raised for is the mental health um, or the mental health wellness and recovery endowment. Um, they're now developing something else that, I might get the name wrong, so I'm not gonna say it, but uh, it's basically an area that's focused exclusively on wellness, mental health and recovery, which is fantastic and needed and awesome. And I hope every school in the country gets to do that.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask next. Um, do you, um, has it, it sounds like it could be a model program for other schools. Um, do you know of other schools and other programs at other schools that are? That yeah, are and, the- and it's, like-
2: it's been something that's been super popular recently, uh, which is awesome. And um, it takes different shapes at different schools. And if you're going to a state school or a private school, or um, you, know, you think of a, a Middlebury versus a University of Alabama, they need two different things. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um the important thing is is that all of them there's a focus shifting across the board towards it and realizing that this is a serious serious problem and we have the capacity to help and this is um usually around the time when these things actually develop and you can see them on the outside and maybe address them sooner so people don't have to suffer as much right which
1: is pretty well, cool that's very cool that's very cool so i guess um let's take it back to the eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, yeah. and if or, or current teachers who are working with adolescents, um, in high school and middle school, um, what would you, and this, I know it's just your experience, but what, what would you recommend that, that teachers look for, um, if they are, if they suspect or, um, an addictive or mental health concern?
2: look for. I mean, in, at, at the end of high school, like, I think it was pretty clear to the faculty, at least the ones that knew me well enough that I was struggling in some way. Um, and I can say that they addressed it in my mind beautifully. And, um, I actually got a lot of support while I was there, um, which is awesome. And, um, I'd say prior to that, it's, um, it's hard candidly. Um, and as I get older too and looking at people that are, and watching my brothers grow up and everything else, um, it's really hard seeing the the outside of what, and like knowing what could be going on, um, but not being able to like fully address it head on because that person might not be ready and also might not be your place, um, is a really hard thing to wrestle with. Um, I would say though that the more that the school and I was put in circles, that vulnerability was encouraged and others were vulnerable in front of me, allowed me to kind of have that mirror back on myself, um, which allowed me to reflect on those things. So I think back to it, I had a class, a very small class my senior year uh, on adolescent psychology. um, And it was probably eight of us. It was without that class, like I might actually not be here today because of what we talked about in there, what I heard other students say, um, really allowed me to look at myself, and um, actually, and some of the people in that in that room helped me make some changes as well as um, at boring school that I might have not otherwise made. Wow,
1: wow,
2: well,
1: so programs, schools, programs.
2: Yeah, um, and just encouraging vulnerable, open conversations, um, and and it's. And again, just my, my experience, but looking back, it oftentimes wasn't it, it had nothing to really do with what I was struggling with. But um watching someone else talk about those things, it really it just like and I think it happens to everyone, but like it really just stirs something up where it's like, is that something I'm dealing with? Like and then it suddenly brings up all these other things that I, I was dealing with at the time um that allowed me to address them I think younger than I would have otherwise been able to and um, have a for all intents and purposes like a pretty wonderful high school and college experience
1: yeah I think and uh, this is making me think of another thing is I mean you're you're I mean we we know this now as adults and now that you're an adult you can you, you have words to put around it but yeah in that in that landscape of adolescence there it's hard for them to to put words around the the self-awareness that's coming to them, especially as they look at the outside world and social media and our it's a relative comparison type situation and helping students create, have the words to talk about what they're seeing, how that, how, how that might be wrong or right or accurate or inaccurate, I guess are better words. Mm-hmm. Um, and teachers can play an enormous role in counselors and administrators and families. So everybody, um, Pay attention, I guess, and encourage these conversations because they truly can be life changing. I'm glad that yeah. a class a class drew your attention to to that. So that yeah. that is I, that does I, not go unrecognized on a, on the teacher. Within um, <laughs> okay, that's amazing. I mean, that is amazing.
2: One final thing I do want to say is that the the more that you can find ways in, I don't know what this means, but to show someone that they're not alone and not alone in struggling with something is um, profound Um, and allows, certainly allowed me to be able to speak up and say that I was struggling Uh, because the biggest fear of mine was that I was totally unique I was this basically a bad human being and, and couldn't share these things and then suddenly I started hearing people talk about the things I had been dealing with my whole life and I thought I was the only one. Um, and it gave me the courage and, the, and again, it's like the vulnerability allows for more vulnerability. Um, so the more you can do that, I think can really, really have a profound impact on someone.
1: I agree. And I'm so grateful that you leaned into your vulnerability with such amazing courage. Um, you are just starting a career and you J.P. Morgan and you have um, you have a beautiful future ahead and you have made a huge difference in your community and sharing this story. I hope you will, your impact will continue throughout the G.C.L.I. community and beyond. Thank you so much for telling your story.
2: Thank you, Bertie
0: Thank y'all for joining us today and we'll see you in two weeks time. Until then, visit us at gclileadership.org and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You'll find all of our links at the bottom of our podcast. And until then, lead on.